potential and possibilities, discussions with fascinating people, designing a better tomorrow for all of us. I'm your host, Ira Pastor. Oh, welcome everybody again to another episode of our show, bringing you another really fascinating guest today who was helping to create a better tomorrow on some very unique fronts uh, in the area of mental health. Uh, we have the honor today of being joined by Dr. Srinivas Rao, who is the Chief Scientific Officer at Atai Life Sciences, uh, which is a clinical stage biopharmaceutical company uh, focused on transforming the treatment of mental health disorders. Uh, they have offices in New York, London, Berlin, and their business model uh, combines funding, technology development, scientific and regulatory expertise, all with a focus on uh, novel psychedelic therapeutic moieties and other drugs that have differentiated safety profiles and, and, and therapeutic potential. Uh, Dr. Rao also serves as the chief executive officer of an Atai portfolio company called Entheogenics, which is a, a computational biophysics and artificial intelligence company, ultimately working to uh, design the next generation of psychedelic inspired mental health drugs. Uh, Dr. Rao has over uh, two decades of professional experience in the pharmaceutical and biotech industries. Uh, prior to Atai, uh, Dr. Rao held titles of chief scientist officer, chief medical officer, or CEO at companies ranging from venture-backed startups uh, to vertically integrated publicly traded pharmaceutical companies. Uh, Dr. Rao completed his internship in internal medicine at Yale uh, New Haven Hospital. I received his PhD in neurobiology from Yale Graduate School, his MD from Yale School of Medicine, uh, and he also holds uh, both bachelor's and master's degrees in electrical engineering uh, from Yale College and Yale Graduate School, respectively. We're honored to have him with us today. Uh, Dr. Srinivas Rao, thank you so much taking time and come on the show. Ira, thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Yeah, it, it, it's great having you. You have a, a fascinating background. I, I would love to just start off for a couple of minutes uh, for you to uh, take us a little bit through the early story of yourself, if you would, and how uh, you got from electrical engineering uh, to medicine and ultimately into uh, neurobiology. I think that'd be a great way to start that things going. Absolutely. So yeah, I, um, my father's a physician, so, you know, at least had some peripheral uh, exposure to medicine all the way through my childhood. Um, he never pushed me into medicine. Uh, and so once I got to college, I was actually thinking about either physics or engineering as my, uh, as my major. I ended up going into computer engineering, but really transitioned very quickly into biomedical applications, as well as uh, neural networks. Um, and that was, you know, that was the very early days of neural networks and using neural networks for, uh, for you know, modeling and, you know, neural-based processing. No convolutional stuff at that point. So it was really very early days. Um, again, all my work was really on biomedical applications, like an, an intelligent wheelchair that I put together for the BA so that uh, they could drive things around. You know, someone that was 
wheelchair bound, but wouldn't run into things or fall off stairs and stuff like that. So these are some of the early things that I did, but it became apparent pretty early on that there were two different languages. You know, physicians spoke one language, engineers spoke another language. And that kind of drove some of my interest in medicine, but it wasn't really clear that I wanted to practice at that time. Um, some of the work I was doing in neural networks and other places really kind of inspired this desire to go into neurobiology as well on the PhD side and really trying to understand the circuit basis of things. Um, cognition, how do things, you know, how do you model uh, cognition in a, in, a, in a device? Well, you need to understand what's going on in the brain. And that's really kind of what kicked things off, um, honestly, in terms of the MD PhD. And that's, uh, that's basically been, the, that's what kind of uh, force that, you know, uh, facilitated that transition. Um, during the course of my MD training, I mean, there were points where I was like, eh, you know, this is kind of fun. I think I may want to do this. Uh, then I did my internship and I was like, yeah, I really don't want to do this in terms of <laughs> taking care of patients. Um, academe was also not a great uh, fit for me because of that engineering background. Um, you know, academic research really is focused on for the most part, really understanding some of the basic mechanisms, and that's great. I am an engineer, and I want to solve a problem, I mean, a, a real-world problem. And so it was kind of a natural fit, even though I didn't know it. It was a very natural fit to then transition into uh, the biotech space, and that's what I did pretty early on. Excellent. Excellent. And, and actually, a couple of years ago, um, you gave a talk at the it was the 10th conference of the International Society for Affective Disorders, and it was entitled uh, Psychiatric Drug Development's Valley of Death. Uh, and you basically uh, pointed out these three components. Uh, one, sort of the just the general uh, valley of death concept that most biotechs go through, that biotech is hard, it's expensive, uh, and that's always going to be a problem. But in terms of psychiatric drug development, you highlighted two other really uh, important things. One, uh, we were... Uh, over-relying on very reductionist sort of single therapeutic, single target approaches uh, when you had this thing, the brain, that is uh, an ideal domain for polypharmacological approaches. And then also um, de-risking, which is, is tough in any area, but uh, an area that, you know, if you look in the right spots, potentially you can find areas, and we'll get into the, the psychedelic domain in a little bit, uh, where you can find data uh, in, in history that points to the fact, hey, maybe there's some interesting pharmacology over here that is de-risk compared to, to other things. Talk a little bit about this valley of death, if you would, and, and how it sort of led to Atai's inception. Yeah, so I mean, the reductionist approach makes sense in many ways, right? Because if you want to try and understand something, um, it makes sense to kind of take it down to a single receptor system and explore that. So I, you know, it's a very reasonable approach um, because polypharmacy, when in the context of existing drugs, tends to involve a certain degree of serendipity. And we'll get to that when we talk about, uh, um, you know, pre-existing data, essentially, uh, you know, uh, de-risking data. So I, I get it, and um, it makes a lot of sense. Um, it was challenged on a couple of different fronts. Again, part of it is the complexity of the brain, but also the inability to really model some of these conditions in animals, right? I mean, with cancer, well, with antibody, you know, with infections, it's pretty easy in an animal, right? If you're trying to treat a staph infection or a strep infection, you can give the animal that. And then you can give them the antibiotics. And for the most part, there's pretty good predictive validity. 
you can't really ask the animal how they're feeling, right? I mean, it's just a challenging thing to do. So we have all these proxy measures. So, you know, the, the combination of this reductionist approach plus the inability to really model things has been, I think, has really stymied the field for a long time. And that kind of leads to this other angle around serendipity and these uh, more complex drugs. Um, tricyclic antidepressants and things like and tetracyclics like mirtazapine have much better efficacy uh, overall, overall than um, uh, you know SSRIs, uh, some of the more specific drugs. Interesting. Don't know what you know. Don't know where you know. Presumably, some of these other mechanisms are impacting the efficacy. It's hard to to really know, but presumably that's what's happening. But those compounds were basically found through serendipity. They were not found through rational drug development. And the same is really true for things like uh, on the on this antipsychotic side, like clozapine. Clozapine has got insanely complicated pharmacology. It still remains one of the best um, antipsychotics out there. It has a lot of safety concerns, um, but that's a different thing. But in terms of pure efficacy, it's really considered one of the best. So. Um, those are sort of the competing tensions. And, you know, with the tie, we basically said, let's focus on the serendipity angle to some degree. Um, those drugs that have, well, they in general have complex pharmacology, but those drugs that do in fact have existing data um, in terms of supporting their efficacy and of course supporting safety as well. You know, there's two reasons a drug fails. One is inadequate um, efficacy, but the other one is safety. So if we've got compounds that are de-risked on both fronts, that's a good place to start in terms of uh, drug development. And that's essentially what we've done. So all of our current pipeline assets do have extensive use history, right? So whether it's DMT or Ibogaine, um, you know, or, you know, uh, edifoxine or deuterated edifoxine, deuterated metrogeny, we, and we know that there's good safety and efficacy data that already exists. Um, and, you know, we are then going after second generation moieties. So we've got in the context of NTHNX as well as other discovery efforts. We are looking at structural derivatives or completely new scaffolds. There will be some NCE risk associated with those. We recognize that. So now you're going into more of the realm of tr more traditional drug development, and that's fine. We are still focusing on polypharmacy to some degree. And theogenics, one of the reasons we went there with Cyclica is that their computational chemistry platform allows for targeting multiple things, multiple receptor systems at the same time. So that's the reason we went there. We wanted to encapsulate potentially, the, uh, potentially all the pharmacology that gives you the benefits, hack out the pieces that may be problematic. And that's essentially what we're doing there. Outstanding, outstanding. Let's um, if you could, let, can we talk about just a couple of the examples from um, in terms of the poly uh, pharmacy and you know, and, and you you know, you highlighted uh, again in this presentation, you know, there may be functional changes, but also structural changes that can be affected as well. Uh, we had uh, and I spoke to Dr. Maliskaya a couple of years ago, uh, working with psilocybin, and, and there, you know, they had this, uh, as you point out, there's sort of the serotonin component, but also. Uh, which has a downstream effect on brain-derived neurotropic factor. Uh, Deborah Mash on the Ibogaine front, having this fascinating sort of uh, binding to the opioid receptor, but doing neat things to serotonin and nicotinic receptors as well. Uh, talk about a couple of the uh, the area, the interesting polypharmacy that you're seeing with some of these compounds. Yeah, I mean, with Ibogaine, I would basically say that I don't think we have a really good sense of why it behaves the way it does. I mean, the pharmacology in general, it's not obvious why there's a psychedelic or a neurophrenic effect. I mean, it's really complicated. 
Um, it's also interesting that a single uh, release of a single carbon moiety, right, changing it from ibogaine to noribogaine, gets rid of all the psychedelic or, or neurophronic effects. So it's a really strange drug. Um, don't know what to make of it in terms of its pharmacology. Um, it makes things more complicated in terms of trying to find derivative compounds and, you know, noribogaine is being developed, uh, MC18 is being developed, but ultimately we don't know if those compounds will have efficacy in the same way that uh, ibogaine does. Um, we are looking at ways of characterizing its pharmacology in a more complex manner and then maybe through cyclica and other, other technologies to try and find other, you know, find derivatives and may get rid of some of the cardiovascular effects, right? We know it causes, it hits HERG, it may cause some QT prolongation. Um, we've seen that from other publications. So we know that we're trying to figure out ways of getting around some of those limitations. Again, keeping all the good stuff, packing away the the, the bad stuff, but not going as fully reductionist as uh, you know one would traditionally do. Um, so DMT kind of similar, 5-HT1A, 5-HT2, there's some dopamine activity, it hits H1. There's lots of different types of activity in these in this molecule as well. Um, how does this all impact efficacy is TBD? We know that uh, um, um, ayahuasca has some pretty good efficacy from an antidepressant uh, perspective. Pure DMT will will get a better sense of that. I mean, you know, there are uh, small pharmas in the midst of the phase two A trial. Let's see how those results uh, pan out. We're doing our own studies and with our particular formulation. So, you know, well, how does this? How do these different types of pharmacology effic um, impact efficacy? The different ratios. Um, are there biased agonist type signals there? I mean, you know, uh, different moieties may impact the the relative activation of different second messenger systems differently. So how does that impact efficacy? All of these things we're exploring. In the context of entheogenics, we've actually generated some really fascinating compounds. Um, they're really high potency agonists at 5-HT2A, but they're not uh, seemingly not psychedelic in animal models. Mm -hmm. So in animal models and rodent models, there's something called the head twitch, uh, which it seems to align with the psychedelic effect in humans. We have things that are pure agonists, essentially, that are very specific that do not cause head twitch. Still trying to figure out what that means. And does that, uh, you know, they, they have a neuroplastic angle. Um, is this, you know, the, is this one of those compounds that is non-psychedelic, but uh, neuroplastic um, um, and, uh, you know, non-psychedelic type of antidepressant? I don't know. We'll get, we'll, we'll get to that. Uh, you know, we're still in the early days of some of those compounds, but very intriguing. Lots of real science here. Let's put it that yeah, way. No, it, it, it's it's fascinating science. I, I've been so you know intrigued by the portfolio uh, for years, and you know, involving some of these uh, these thought leaders that that you work with. Um, talk a little bit about the you know the the hub and spoke model because you have you know you made a lot of bets. Um, you know, you look at something like the treatment resistant depression. Uh, you have the DMT program, uh, Salvador A, the, the ketamine and antimer. You have the, the the relationship with Compass and on psilocybin. Um, Talk a little bit about how this model works a little bit in, in the sense of, uh, I mean, you're not going to have 20 depression product <laughs> programs going on, but you got quite a bit going on here. Yeah, so let's focus on the treatment-resistant depression piece first, then we can talk about how and spoke more broadly. Sure. So why are we doing what we're doing is a really good question. Um, 
we are looking at compounds with very different pharmacologies, right? So uh, our ketamine has a glutamatergic effect. You know, it's probably mediated, its effects are probably mediated by glutamate. Um, DMT, 5-HT2A, salmon-RNA is a kappa opioid uh, agonist. So these are very different. Yep. The reason for this is treatment-resistant depression is, is multifactorial, right? I mean, we don't know what the underlying pathophysiology is other than to say that there's probably many different underlying pathophysiologies. There's many different depressions. Um, and we don't think that one size fits all. And I've said this from the very outset. Um, I don't think that something like a psilocybin or DMT will address everybody. There's going to be people that simply do not respond. And the phase 2B results from Compass also support that. I mean, many people responded. Those that responded had really long-term benefits. And that's remarkable. And that's a unique piece about psilocybin. But there are other people that just didn't respond. And our our conjecture is that maybe some of those folks will respond with different pharmacologies. Maybe there's a different underpinning to their their disease, essentially, as opposed to the more broad syndrome of mm -hmm. depression. Maybe there's something specific. Um, we ultimately want to do biomarkers of some kind that allow us to predict which patient's going to respond to which drug. That's obviously been a challenging thing to, to, um, to do in the, in the you know, CNS space, in the affective disorder space. Uh, we're bear bringing to bear many different modalities, um, digital biomarkers, metabolomics, uh, quantitative EEG. So we're bringing together many different things to try and see whether there's a signal there that can give us some guidance. Um, the ideal is that you have someone with that comes in with treatment-resistant depression or depression. Um, you do a simple test, ideally just a blood test, but maybe a blood test plus something else. Um, and then you can get a very rapid signal of where this patient should go next. And that's going to save the doctor time, and that's important. You know, the doctor doesn't uh, have to have this patient not respond and then have to have them come back in and switch medications. Um, obviously, it's huge for the patients, right? So we're trying to reduce morbidity and, um, you know, unfortunately, mortality as well in this, uh, in this very challenging patient population. So that's the reason that we have these different angles okay. um, in terms of pharmacology. Now, psilocybin and DMT. Psilocybin... Um, we know it has efficacy. We've seen beautiful efficacy. Uh, the one caveat to it, if you will, is that it requires a long stay in the doctor's office. That's why we took went forward with DMT. DMT has a very short half-life. We're using formulation technology to kind of adapt. I mean, we can, we're looking at sort of 45 minutes-ish for a psychedelic duration that's markedly shorter than what you see with psilocybin. We want to take that. Um, we want to take something with that kind of a profile and slot it into the infrastructure that J&J &J has already established for S-ketamine. So that's kind of our angle there. So we view that almost as a next level. Um, we're anticipating multiple doses, you know, repeat dosing, that's fine. Uh, but if we can reduce the burden for the patient and the site because of the very frequent dosing of Spravato, I think that's still a massive win. So that's the depression side of things. Now, in terms of the broader hub and spoke, going back to that, um, part of the benefits here are that we have, particularly for companies that we brought in, where you know it's cash, it's resource efficient, right? So we are getting access to these assets uh, without paying for the entire, you know, paying the entire equity value of, of the of the asset. Moreover, we have a team of founders that is dedicated to the asset, that know the asset. 
So that's an important element. Um, however, these companies tend to have very small teams. There's a passionate group around it, but they may not have the, the full spectrum of capabilities. And that's where a tie comes in once again. We have a very broad uh, um, and very capable R&D team that's been put together. It's over 50 people at this point, literally running from everything from you know preclinical development, discovery chemistry, all the way to late stage clinical development. Um, CMC, you know, from drug substance to drug product and multiple formulations. So we have the entire gamut at the Atai level. And we can kind of drag and drop and put what capabilities we need in each one of these companies at the appropriate time. So it's very efficient from that perspective. Because, you know, you don't necessarily need an entire uh, CMC department um, for a phase one, phase two, a compound. You need them at sort of specific intervals. And then they can kind of back off a little bit. And of course, as the asset starts to move through the pipeline, gets into phase three, you need dedicated teams, I would argue. Sure. But early stage, I don't think you necessarily do. And this is a much more efficient model. In terms of um, entheogenics, um, you know, modifying, you know, these structures and, and you know, getting wet of side effects and, and so forth. Um, when it comes to, you know, as you were just mentioning, uh, peeling off the uh, the visionary component of some of these molecules. You mentioned obviously DMT very short, but things like IBAing can go all day. Um, are there are there cases you think, you know, based on your long experience in the sort of the neurobiology space there, uh, what you've termed psychedelic assisted psychotherapy has its place still, or do you think we're gonna totally get rid of the visionary component of these compounds and, do you get any resistance from sort of the yeah? I some, think it's, that it's a very interesting question. And it depends on what how one interprets the psychedelic effects, right? If you think about what a psychedelic is doing, I mean, the one hypothesis, and it's one that I tend to espouse, is you know you're you've got something that's causing pronounced neuroplasticity in the context of pronounced network disruption, right? So you're changing the activity of the formal network, the reward networks, um, the, you know, sort of the hedonic networks, all of these things are being changed acutely because of the psychedelic, I mean, because of these drugs, because of the 5-HT2A activation and other receptor activation. And simultaneously, you're making it, the brain much more malleable, right? So basically you're changing the nature of the connections and that presumably is driving efficacy that's also durable. I mean, it doesn't make, you know, the, the pharmacodynamics of these drugs way markedly outweighs the pharmacokinetics, right? Psilocybin being a perfect example, those that respond, you know, that the, the drug is gone from your system 12 hours out, there's not much of anything hanging out at that point, but you're seeing efficacy, you know, mon months out. So. Yep. That implies there's structural changes that are occurring. So those, the network disruption in particular is going to have a manifestation. If you're changing the activity of all these things, you're not gonna feel the same, right? Um, yeah. You get this network disruption when you're asleep and that's called dreaming, right? So that's also the same kind of thing. And you that's why you get dreams that are kind of psychedelic elements. If you think about REM sleep, I mean, they're, they're kind of disconnected from reality and they have, certain elements that uh, overlap with the psychedelic effect. Um, so if you view it as a manifestation of that, then the answer would be, and you need both elements, the answer is, yeah, you probably need both. Um, on the other hand, you may be able to take just neuroplasticity in the context of some form of training, like 
you know, whether it's cognitive behavioral therapy administered by a person um, or it's being delivered by digital technology, which is what we're interested in, that may be just as, as well. I mean, that may be fine as well, right? Because you're trying to get new patterns of activity, new behavioral, uh, new behaviors, and you need some sort of training and you need it in a state where the brain is susceptible, if you will, to learning, right? Um, changing habits is hard. Changing habits is very hard, as I think we can all attest. But, and so if a drug can facilitate that, that, that would be ideal. And I think a good example of that in many ways is MDMA. Um, MDMA, you know, you're not really thinking about it as a psychedelic. I mean, there can be perceptual distortions to be sure, but really the way I view it is that the intactogenic profile allows you to get a better therapeutic alliance with yourself. Uh, you know, the therapists uh, in the in the in the group always like kind of scoff when I say that, but you know, it allows you to tap into some of these things that you don't want to touch otherwise. It's too scary. Um, or, you know, it's incongruent uh, uh, with your your view of yourself. All of these different angles kind of come up. This is what this drug is doing. And then you need to kind of work through that. You need to talk through it to some degree. And that's kind of the MAPS approach, if you will, right? It's really working through some of the challenges. So that's a perfect example, really, of you know, drug plus therapy kind of coming together. The drug may or may not be effective on its own. I mean, if you're at a rave, I don't think it's giving you any kind of therapeutic <laughs> benefit. Um, on the other hand, this com the combination, because of the right context, is giving you a benefit. We know that, again, we've seen that with their phase three results. So, you know, I think that's, a, it's just, it, there's two different models here. In the psychedelic, it could be that you need the network disruption. The network disruption manifests as you know psychedelic effect. In the context of something like an MDMA, it's less prominent. It's really more about um, having a uh, putting this, the brain in the appropriate state where therapy is going to really have a profound effect that's persistent. I know that was a bit of a long-winded answer. No, no, it was, a, it was an awesome answer. I, I, I appreciate going into that. I, I, you know, you, you were talking uh, about the the portfolio, and you have some, you know, what I refer to big guns on the list here of um, of uh, pharmaceutical candidates where, where the moieties are are being derived from, and so forth. Uh, I go down the list though, and then I bump into N-acetylcysteine, which. I'm familiar with in my local CVS uh, as an over-the-counter product, but uh, you're studying it for mild traumatic brain injury. Could you talk a little bit about this one? It yeah, little, It seems a little out of place, but maybe I'm not. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, there's an opportunistic element sure. to be sure here, and we are looking at things that uh, you know, are significant on medical needs. Yeah. Uh, certainly mild traumatic brain injury falls into that bucket. Uh, mild traumatic brain injury is more impactful than most people realize. I mean, there's a markedly increased risk of affective disorders and other forms of, you know, dementia and everything else that's downstream from that. So that certainly was interesting. You're right, N-acetylcysteine is available, but N-acetylcysteine delivered orally is not particularly bioavailable to the brain. Mm. Um, and so we are looking at an alternative delivery modality, which is intranasal. Gotcha. And the idea is to markedly increase the uptake there. It turns out to be more difficult than one would anticipate to get it into the brain. That's sort of the secret sauce to some degree. Um, and the idea is that, you know, someone comes in with a, with a concussion, 
um, you can then dose them with this product and you know increase uh, uh, the well decrease the time to uh, resolution of symptoms essentially and hopefully improve downstream um, uh, you know manifestations of the of the concussion. Excellent, Sri. Um, your PhD was. Uh, Done in a title is elucidating the role of inhibition in circuit basis of spatial working memory, and you've published uh, a series of uh, papers in the in the literature on on memory. Um, thinking, uh, you know, obviously beyond sort of this basket of depression, uh, post traumatic stress, and so forth, some of the the indications you're going after. Uh, talk about some of the the larger. Uh, central nervous system degenerative disorders and, and, and potential applications down the road that you may be interested there, whether it's dementia or uh, some of these other uh, significant unmet medical needs. Yeah, um, it's interesting. The lab that I worked in was actually focused on schizophrenia. Okay. And cognitive impairments associated with schizophrenia are very well characterized. In fact, they can be prodromal, right? So before you have the positive symptoms, which are the hallucinations, the voices in your head, uh, sometimes visual hallucinations as well, you actually start seeing negative symptoms and cognitive impairments. So, uh, for example, a kid may start falling off their curves, right? They might be a straight-A student, blah, 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 and actually start to decline cognitively prior to having the first psychotic break. So this is a described, this, you know, this is a phenomenon that's been described. So part of that is an alteration of working memory and that's really the focus, that was the focus of uh, my, my work and my PhD work at a very basic science level, understanding the networks that are involved, understanding the pharmacology of those networks, which actually looked at GABA, uh, you know, GABA as a sure. inhibitory um, uh, neurotransmitter as well as glutamate, as well as serotonin. In fact, I did a lot of work with 5-HT2A at that time in that context. So um, that was the backstory. And again, that's always been that interest in cognitive impairments associated with schizophrenia is something that's come up a few times. I've always been uh, intrigued by that space. Um, I was involved with the development uh, of a compound called BL1020 a long time ago. We looked at uh, cognitive impairments. Schizophrenia didn't work, and with that compound didn't work, unfortunately. But that, you know, that backstory is why we brought on, you know, in part why we brought on R007. Um, the recognify acid. It's again, it, it, there's a recognition that this is a huge problem. Uh, it's an incredibly impactful problem for those folks with schizophrenia. It's one of the reasons, one of the important reasons that they have to stay in, in board and care facilities, that they can't uh, get a job. Um, uh, why there's, you know, why they have such a, you know, why these patients are so expensive because, uh, you know, the fact that they can't be gainfully employed. Um, so anything that we can do to improve on that is uh, something that would be fantastic from a patient and societal level. Um, now, to your question about expanding beyond that, uh, I, I think that's a really intriguing one. So with R07, there's definitely, uh, if we get a signal with schizophrenia, I think there's a number of different ways we can go. I mean, I have a personal interest in autism. I think that'd be really intriguing. But the other angle there is dementia. One of the reasons that we picked schizophrenia is that it's relatively, relatively more homogeneous than something like dementia, and even relatively more homogeneous um, than autism. That's why we went after that as the first indication. But I think there's other angles that we can pursue there. Um, there's actually some interest in pursuing some of the psychedelics as well because of some of the neuroplastic, uh, the, the pro-neuroplastic uh, um, efficacy of these compounds. Could you 
you could you utilize that? Can you harness that in some ways to improve the cognitive uh, profile of these patients? You know, if not, I, I don't think they're necessarily going to be, um, uh, you know, disease altering. But I think that they could alter the course of the disease and maybe uh, uh, um, improve cognition in, in a more durable manner, kind of like what you're seeing on the affective side. So again, something that we're looking into as well. And, and while we're on that 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 topic, one other thing I just want to ask you about because I uh, I had a chat about the maybe a year ago with uh, Sharon Inouye up at Harvard, who you know specializes in delirium, and you know delirium is one of those odd buckets on the side here, sort of falls under sort of the the hallucinogen basket, and we you know there's delirium compounds and there's you know weird antihistamines from back in the 1950s and all that bit atropine. Um, any interesting things? Because that's another one of those, you know, it, it gets kind of misdiagnosed and it's, you know, this this weird state of confusion, the short-term confusion. Any sort of anti-delirient pharmacology uh, that you might run into when you're studying these compounds? Because that's a, another one of those, forget we, we forget about it, but it's there and it's a major in sort of the, the elderly population that we confuse uh, sometimes with just the dementia side of the equation. That's a really, that's an interesting question and not one I've actually spent too much time uh, thinking about, to be honest with you. I think part of the challenge there is it's more like a positive symptom, if you will, mm -hmm. right? The confusion and everything. So the current batch of compounds that we're developing, it's not intuitive that they would be great for that. Uh, but it's not, again, not something that I've really spent a lot of time thinking about. That's, that's fine. Just like, ask. <laughs> yeah, no, I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, what um, what else is hot that's coming up for 2022? Um, any uh, upcoming things you want to mention? Conferences you're going to be presenting at places that people can uh, listen to you, meet you face to face. Uh, please, any, anything that I miss, please take the floor. Yeah, I mean, there's a few conferences for sure. I mean, the the schedule is always a little up in the air, to be honest with you. But there's uh, certainly ACNP. The American College of Neuropharmacology meeting, which will be, I think it's either November or December, I'll certainly be at that one. A lot of investor meetings along the way that I'll be at. So Citibank is coming up. Um, there's a few others that uh, um, uh, Wainwright, uh, a couple of others that I'll be at. In terms of newsworthy events, we do have a lot, I mean, there's a lot of things that we're really excited about that are coming up. I mean, you know, this perception with the R Academy that we sort of touched upon a little bit, we have a phase 2A readout mm -hmm. coming up a little later this year. So that's going to be really exciting. That is a putatively non-psychedelic, non-dissociative compound yep. with rapid-acting effects or rapid-acting efficacy. That's going to be really intriguing. So uh, truly looking forward to that uh, the, that readout. Got a lot of really interesting phase 1 readouts that will be coming out as well. So... GABA with their, their adafoxine uh, product. Um, uh, yeah, we've got some pharmacodynamic endpoints there as well. So that's a sad mat that, that will support moving forward, uh, hopefully into a phase 2A. Um, we've got the cures asset, which is uh, looking at deuterated metragyny. Metragyny is the active moiety in Crata. Mm -hmm. Very unique. It's an opioid, but a very unique one. There's not much in the way of respiratory depression associated with it. That That's a big problem with opioids, right? Yep. Opioid-mediated uh, fatalities uh, are usually because as a result of respiratory depression. Uh, so if we can do something about that, that's huge. So um, that trial does have experimental pain endpoints, and we do have a comparative element where we look at, in a crossover manner, looking at the analgesic efficacy of uh, deuterate metragenine versus oxycodone versus placebo 
and looking at therapeutic index. So that readout will be later this year as well. We'll also get some data around Ibogaine um, kicking off a bunch of trials as well this year, and uh, including uh, the DMT asset and path bio, which is then be a major derivative, et cetera. So there's quite a bit going on so that uh, in turn from a new slow perspective. Awesome. Awesome. And we will stay tuned to it all and, and continue to follow it. But in fact, it's fascinating how far you brought this portfolio. Shri. And I, I just, uh, I take my hat off to you. It's uh, it's an amazing uh, set of programs and really wishing you the best with all of it. Um, for everybody that is going to be listening to this particular episode uh, across the podcast networks or are watching on our YouTube channel, again, you've been listening to Dr. Srinivas Rao, Chief Scientific Officer of Thai Life Sciences, uh, doing amazing things to transform the treatment and mental health disorders. Uh, I sure want to thank you for, for taking the time out of your schedule to come talk to us for a little while about these topics. Obviously, thanks for everything you're doing there at Atai and the portfolio companies. And we say on our show, uh, thanks for helping to create a better tomorrow uh, for many people out there. It's, it's a great story and appreciate your time. Absolutely. And let me emphasize it's a team effort. Um, it's we got a fantastic team very dedicated that's been doing all the heavy lifting. So um, definitely not going to take credit for it. But yeah, I really do appreciate the time. It's great seeing you.